0: couple of important announcements before we get started. First of all, we just received notification from the um, girl who uh, watches the Children Works in the Nursery. They gave us two weeks' notice this morning. So we are in need, a desperate need, of someone to take her place, and that's not always easy. So those of you who are parents who may know of someone that you might recommend that uh, would be willing to take on a Sunday morning job, uh, please let us know. So we need to find someone uh, within the next two or three weeks. Let me see. There seem to be oh the, another announcement. We have uh, one adu- actually two adults, one of whom is a seminary student, and two high school kids from this church who are taking a missions trip this summer to Kiev. They're going to go over, leave around the 11th of July. To go to Kiev and they're going to help run a week long, uh, summer camp for, uh, uh, kids over there in Kiev working with Jim Myers Ministries and they will be, uh, taking, they're in the process now of getting their passports and their visas and getting all of that together so that they can take off at that particular time, the cost of the trip is somewhere around seventeen, eighteen hundred dollars a piece, and we thought we would just open the grace box between now and then for anybody who wished to contribute to help them uh, help these kids defray the cost on that missions trip, and then we would apply that to each, uh, split it up between those who are going. So if you are, we'll keep that. We'll put that in the bulletin to remind everybody of that particular thing. Uh Dan's going with them, and Nancy's going with them as the adult supervisors. Dan also has another seminary guy going with him who happens to be from Kiev, and he came over here two or three years ago to go through Capitol Seminary and has uh, a classmate of Dan, so he's going to go back. So he'll be serving as a translator and working with them also. So we will uh, be doing that. Let me see, any other announcements? Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. The Scripture teaches that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. At the instant we put our faith in Christ, believe that He died on the cross as our substitute, that He paid the penalty for our sins, we have eternal salvation. However, we still sin. And when we sin, it grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit And the scriptures teach that while sin does not cost us our salvation, it does hinder our and break our fellowship with God. So we need to uh, confess our sins, to admit or to acknowledge our sins to God the Father. And he instantly forgives us. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our spiritual progress. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to worship you through the teaching and study of your word, which is the highest form of worship. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking this morning, that under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, we would be responsive to what you have to teach us in your word. Father, we thank you for this nation. We continue to pray for it and for its leaders. Pray for the security of this nation during this war against terrorism. The continued hostilities in Iraq, though they are now sporadic, we pray for the safety of our troops. We pray for those from this congregation that are serving over there and those in this congregation who are have been called to active duty and are serving uh, stateside. We pray for them and for their families and that they might be a solid testimony and witness uh, to the stability that doctrine gives. Father, we continue to pray for this church, for our congregation, for the impact that you are having both locally as well as nationally and internationally. We pray for the group going to Kiev this summer, that you would uh, prepare those that they will be ministering to when they uh, come to Kiev and that you would make that uh, a profitable time for them spiritually. We pray all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we should wrap up our study of 2nd John. So we are in 2nd John chapter, or verse 10. We covered the first half of verse 10 last time and Lord willing we will wrap it up today and finish out this epistle. Now, remember there's two themes that are emphasized in this epistle and we have to deal with the fact that John emphasizes them together. They come together in a way that is complementary. In verses 4 through 6, the emphasis is on the new commandment that Jesus gave the disciples. In John thirteen thirty four and 35, that we love one another as Christ has loved us. And in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus reiterated several times, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John picks up that same theme, emphasizes it several times in the first epistle. He reiterates it this time and links it to the same basic doctrinal issue that he did in the first epistle, and that is having a correct understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 4 through 6 of Second John, the emphasis is on loving one another. In verse 7, he warns about those who do not believe Jesus came in the flesh. In other words, there are those at that time in history, those who we know were called docetics. It was an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an extremely abstruse uh, Intellectual sort of system of religion that appealed to just about everybody because it it uh, included so many different things it picked up elements of of eastern dualism and By dualism, we mean a philosophical system that holds to the eternal existence of both good and evil that there is no origin of evil, no origin of good. They are both equal principles and eternal principles in the universe. And ultimately then, if, if if evil and good are both eternal, and you press it back far enough, then then there ultimately is no distinction between good and evil. Everything ultimately breaks down because your ultimate reality is an impersonal dualism. And this always creates problems. So they picked up dualism from Persia and from the East. They picked up elements of morality from Judaism, elements of, of, uh, philosophy from the Greeks, elements of mysticism from the mystery religions, and they just sort of put all this in their Hamilton Beach blender and turned it on high and mixed it all up and, and produced a whole new drink. And, It depended on who you were. You might want a mix with uh, more dualism in it and less morality. You might want a drink that had more mysticism in it and and less philosophy. And so there was something for everybody. You could just mix and match and put, put it together however you wanted. But at the core level of this, at one of the core levels, there was the idea that matter, that which was physical or material, was less significant, in fact, in much of uh, uh, the the thinking because of the influence of Platonism. The idea was if it existed in reality, it was less perfect than in in the ideal. Therefore, the idea was that if God became a man, he would be tainted by the physical and become a sinner. So therefore, because you're taking this external philosophical, rationalistic principle, and using that as your interpretive grid for the Scripture, you end up with uh, having to conclude that, well, God, therefore, could not become a man. Now, we look at that and we say, well, how silly that was. But people do that all the time. You do it, I do it. We all think that there's some sort of ultimate principle somewhere, and we use that as a grid for interpreting the Scripture, Whether it's our own common sense or whether it's our culture or if you get into issues related to creation and evolution, whether it is the the absolute veracity of modern science, whatever it is, people do that. And that's part of what the Christian life is all about is learning to identify those hidden assumptions that we have related to knowledge where we're trying to force the Bible to fit our preconceived grid, our preconceived so-called rationalistic principles ...and and make the Bible fit something else, rather than taking the Bible in and of itself, interpreting it in the light of its own teaching, and then interpreting all of reality under the grid of the Scriptures. Well, the challenge was, why then does Jesus Christ have to be fully human? And the answer is that Jesus in his humanity lives a spiritual life, faces every manner, every category of testing that you and I face, and he handles it all through dependence on the Holy Spirit and application of doctrine. The point is that Jesus in his humanity pioneers for us the spiritual life and the approach to solving problems, facing stress, handling adversity that is to be ours. And one of the key ways to handle adversity, especially when it comes to people testing, is through impersonal love or unconditional love for other people. So this is the principle. If Jesus isn't fully man, then the love that he exhibited in his life when he goes to the cross isn't the same kind of love that you and I can have. And so, therefore, it would be easy to rationalize and say, well, Jesus just did that out of his deity. He did that because he was God. He was able to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do, because he was God. Well how can you expect me to do that? And the point of application is Jesus does that out of his humanity using impersonal love in the same way that you and I can have that same kind of mentality and same kind of attitude towards those who are Hostile to us, those who have done something to hurt us, those who have caused us some sort of pain or grief in life, those who have rejected us, and we can stay inside the soul fortress handling the difficulties of life from people testing through the use of impersonal and unconditional love. So this is why the doctrine of Christ is not just some sort of abstract theology set out there that, oh, that's nice and that's scriptural and that gives me some intellectual stimulation as I try to figure out the differences between posse non-pecari and non-posse non-pecari and, and uh, the impeccability of Christ and all of these other abstruse and abstract terminologies. It's not that. It, it, it boils down to the fact that a Christ, who, a Jesus who is not fully man, doesn't give us what we need as true humans to handle The issues of life. This is why this is foundational and crucial. And if you don't hold to a correct Christology, there can be no fellowship with God because fellowship isn't something that's just related to the Holy Spirit, but fellowship is Trinitarian. It is fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, Paul says, I mean, John says in verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide, and that's a technical term in Johannine literature for fellowship, does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. doesn't mean they're not saved. It means they're not enjoying fellowship with God. They are out of fellowship, carnal, walking according to the sin nature. Then he concludes, he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So fellowship isn't just a matter of not sinning. It's a matter also related to correct doctrine. Then in verse 10, he introduces a conditional clause. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine or this teaching. If here is a first class condition. There are four classes of conditions in the Greek. Uh, In English, when we want to express something that is hypothetical, if we want to express something that is contingent, we use the expression "if." We have only one way to do that, and that is this little word "if." But in Greek, there were four different ways to express this kind of condition, and it really developed within the whole with the development of um, of Greek thought, especially the d- development of logic. And in debate and the practice of rhetoric, they would start off with an assumption and the assumption would be stated in the first part of a conditional clause, if such and such is true, then they would come to a conclusion, then such and so, and they would prove that through logical argumentation. So one way to express it was that the first part of the clause, or the first part of the if statement called the protasis, would be expressed a certain way if and assuming this is true. Then on the other hand, you may take a debater who's going to take the other side of the argument, and he's going to take the position if, and assuming it's not true, then such and such would follow. So you have your first class condition is usually expressed as if, and in the view of the speaker, if, and it's true. Second class, in the view of the speaker, if, and it's not true. And then the third class is what we would call as the true condition, if, uh, maybe yes, and maybe no. If it doesn't freeze this week then i'll be able to put my indoor plants outside for a little warm air but in new england the first of may that is a true third-class condition because who knows we could have snow again this week like i don't know how many of you had flurries this last week see we just don't know it's not quite spring yet so that's a true third-class condition and a fourth-class condition was if in certain extreme uh... circumstances now This is a first-class condition, meaning that John recognizes the reality of the Protestants, if, and it's true, someone will come to you in the future, and this will probably happen. So he says, if anyone comes to you, and it could be anyone, it could be someone you know, it could be a long-time friend, it could be someone who even had good doctrinal credentials at one time, uh, previously, So it could be anyone. It is the indefinite pronoun, uh, tis, meaning anyone in particular. He doesn't have anybody in particular in mind, just anyone in general. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine. By this doctrine, he's talking about correct Christology, the correct doctrine of Christ, going back to verse 9. This includes six things. Is pre-incarnate deity and eternality. There never was a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. Because he is fully God, he partakes of all of the attributes of God. He is equally sovereign, equally righteous, equally just, equally love, equally eternal, equally omniscient, equally omnipotent, equally uh, omnipresent, equally ver- Voracious or veracity, equally uh, immutable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That indicates that he in his character never changes. Now, we know that there was a change in Jesus. He assumed true humanity. But that is not a change to who he was in his second person, his character, his identity as a second person in the Trinity, doesn't change with the addition of humanity he is still fully god and that is part of tr- true christology that there is a distinction between the two natures in christ they do not blend or mix the attributes of one do not apply to the other he is fully god and fully man undiminished deity united with true humanity he is eternal Then we have the virgin conception and virgin birth, which is the mechanics for the incarnation, where the eternal second person of the Trinity uh, became a true human being. Then related to his life, he is impeccable. That means he does not sin. He did not sin. He lived a perfectly sinful life. He not only possessed perfect righteousness from birth, because he did not inherit a sin nature from Adam because of the virgin conception and birth, but he never made a decision related to sin. Have you ever thought about how hard that must have been for his brothers and sisters? You know, he had brothers and sisters they, they weren't cousins, they were brothers and sisters. that's probably why they didn't believe on him till after the resurrection. I mean can you believe that? Why can't you be like your brother Jesus? I mean, it's rough enough when you have a goody-two-shoes older sibling anyway, but when it's Jesus and he really is perfect, then you really have a problem. So they probably hated his guts from the day they, were, they, they knew enough. You know, this guy never makes a mistake. He never needs a spanking. He never gets in trouble. And mom and dad think we're going to be the same way. So, you know, when you bring it down to just everyday life, it must have been pretty tough having an older brother like Jesus. But he was impeccable. He was sinless, and he understood his mission in life, and he was totally devoted to that mission of God the Father. So he is occupied with God and occupied with God's plan for his life, and that's even worse. I mean, we all know that we're grown up. We grow up, and we're we're sinners, and we have sin natures, but it's rough enough having an older sibling that's pretty good, but it's really bad when they're, they're really totally devoted to spiritual things, and we're not. Now you really have a problem. But Jesus was impeccable, and he had many opportunities, I'm sure, within his own family to exercise uh, the principle of impersonal and unconditional love. So we have his impeccability, and then that relates to his person and his life, and then his work on the cross, substitutionary spiritual death, where he died as a substitute for all mankind. Then we have the literal physical bodily resurrection, which we covered last week on Resurrection Sunday. The literal bodily resurrection of Christ. He was in the grave for three days and three nights, and then he was res- resurrected. He received his resurrection body. His, the Apparently the molecules from the physical body he had, his mortal body, were transformed into a new mortal body. I often facetiously joke about that because if, when the tomb was empty, when they, when the gra- stone was rolled back, the gra- grave clothes were lying there on the shelf, uh, yet the body was gone. So the, there was a napkin or cloth for the head that was at one end. There were other grave clothes that were at the other end, and the body was gone, so they just collapsed in place. Now, if you think about that, what the implication is is that the, the physical, material, uh, molecules that made up the mortal body are then transformed and used to make up the new body. Well, does that mean that if I die and I give my heart and my kidneys and my uh, eyes to science and they go to somebody else and then the rapture occurs, what happens? Well, you can think about that at night sometime when you have nothing better to do. And just uh, think about what happens when the rapture occurs and to all those airplanes in the sky and the cars on the highway. That'll give you a little distraction. So we have the physical resurrection of Christ and finally his literal physical second coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. This is basic, an outline of basic Christology. And as we've gone through Second John, we have covered uh, almost every aspect of this in our study This tells us who Jesus is. And you can come preaching another Jesus, the Jesus that uh, the Roman Catholics teach is not this Jesus. The Jesus that the Mormons teach is not this Jesus. The Jesus that Islam talks about is not this Jesus. The Jesus that a Hindu or a Buddhist will talk about is not this Jesus. So you have to be careful that when you're talking with somebody and you say, Do you believe in Jesus?, that they are believing that Jesus Christ is the, the the Son of Mary, who is who the Bible claims to be the Son of God, undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person, is the sufficient payment for our sins on the cross and nothing can or should or ought be added to his work on the cross for salvation. There's no reliance on good works, good deeds, ritual, or any other human factor. All of this is foundational. If you don't have the right Jesus, you can't have the right salvation. If you don't have the right Jesus, you can't have the right spiritual life. This is why the doctrine of Christ is so crucial and so important. Now in verse 10, John says, If anyone comes to you, and they will, and if they do not carry this doctrine, and this is the Greek verb uh, pharaoh. The Greek verb pharaoh, it's a third person singular present active indicative, meaning that this is, it's probably a characteristic, uh, present, indicating that if this is not the characteristic of what they bring. The idea here of pharaoh is to bring like you carry baggage with you. So if part of their baggage isn't correct Christology, then, this is what we have, if anyone comes to you and does not carry this doctrine, then, although then is not stated, it's implied, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. And the word receive is the present active imperative of lambano. This would be a, uh, uh, a present imperative always indicates a standard operating procedure ...or characteristic of the Christian life, something that should constantly uh, be present. Do not receive him. You should not ever receive him. It almost picks up the customary or habitual idea of a present tense. This should be your standard operating system not to receive him into your house... Now, what does John mean when he says, into your house? There are many people, and I've made this mistake in the past, where if you haven't exegeted the whole text, you want to interpret this in light of your own frame of reference, which is your domicile. This is not talking about your domicile, although I think there may be some application when the JWs knock on your door. But this is talking about a house church. He Remember, he is writing, ...to the church called the Elect Lady in verse 1, and her children. He is talking, addressing a house church in uh, one of the cities in Asia Minor. We're not sure. It could be Laodicea, Heropolis, or Colossae. We're not sure at all which one it is, but it is definitely a small church in one of the smaller areas outside of Ephesus where they met in a local house. So the concept of house here relates to the local congregation. That they, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not accept them into your church. That's the application. Nor greet him. And actually that's sort of a, uh idiomatic translation there, nor greet him, actually... In the uh, the Greek text, what it says is, do not say hello to him. Karain, which was the standard Greek greeting. Hello, how are you? Have a nice day. Don't say that. And this is an extremely strong statement in light of... The fact that today we live in a society, a pluralistic society, freedom of religion. We live in a society where tolerance is the new criterion and tolerance is no longer simply putting up with somebody's uh, bad manners, bad beliefs, or false religion tolerance it has the idea today of accepting and approving of what other people believe, no matter how uh, asinine, stupid, or heretical it might be. And what we have here is a clear statement to the local church that the local church is not to accept, take in, allow anyone with false doctrine to come into their presence. They need to... Avoid them. Now this isn't just anyone, like somebody walking in off the street as a visitor, but this is somebody who claims to have something to teach or to promote. We went through this about two or three months ago when we had a visitor from one of the local, uh, cults or sects who popped in one day to announce judgment on the congregation and as soon as I finished with the closing prayer and said, hey man, he popped up like a jack in the box wanting to uh, say something and I had, I was forewarned so We ejected him as quickly as possible, and everybody thought I would probably lost my mind when I started yelling for this guy to leave the congregation. Anyway, in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a traveling philosopher or religious teacher to come to an area And he would start speaking to a group and would expect that whatever group it was, whatever religious system or philosophical group, whatever, or in the case of Christianity, a local church, that he would rely on the local believers to financially support him. We saw something of this in our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul talked about the fact that all of the other apostles clearly exercised their right to take their wife with them and exercise their right to be logistically supported and have their families logistically supported by the local congregations. And this was a standard practice, and we'll see a reference to this when we get into 3 John, and that's sort of the background in 3 John verses 5 through 8. So, This is the idea of someone who claims to have a message from God, claims to teach, be able to teach, wants to communicate something related to the word, and comes into the congregation. In other words, somebody who has a doctrinal agenda, and yet as part of their doctrinal baggage, they do not have a correct Christology. Therefore, the Bible clearly teaches that the local congregation is a closed system. You can allow for visitors, but there are certainly rules and regulations for the conduct of a local congregation. And this is why it is important for local churches to have clear doctrinal statements. And as part of that, as part of membership, where you have a voice in the running of the congregation, like we have with the congregational government, that it is clear that people not simply agree to a a doctrinal statement. You know, most people, when they come and join a church, they really don't know how to read a doctrinal statement. In fact, a doctrinal statement can often read to many people like some sort of, of a legal contract. And, you, you know, when you go rent a car or you go pick up your prescription, you have to read all these instructions and then sign off on it. And for most people, they just kind of skim the page and, well, everybody signs off on it, so I will too. And it's typical as in many congregations, to simply ask the question, uh, do you agree with our doctrinal statement? Are you willing to submit to the authority of the pastor? And people read over the doctrinal statement. And what happens is they don't see anything that is offensive. They don't see anything that they disagree with. So they say, yeah, that's fine. I agree with that. Now what's going to happen is that as they grow and advance, they may have picked up some strange idea like that that they weren't even clear on. Uh, in the past, they might have heard post-tribulationism or some sort of covenant theology or lordship, salvation, or whatever. And because they're theologically naive and they don't have all the vocabulary or whatever it might be, when they read the doctrinal statement, they're not really clear what it said. Now, the question I like to ask is not do you agree with the doctrinal statement, but is everything in the doctrinal statement what you personally understand and are committed to? See, it changes the nuance there. It makes it more proactive that you really understand everything you read in the doctrinal statement, and that is your foundational belief that you're committed to, that it's not just something that, oh, yeah, I didn't find anything offensive there. Because what happens is you get a congregation, And you don't make a big deal about this, especially today. And you get people who have various agendas that can seep into a congregation. And sooner or later, some sort of doctrinal issue raises its head, and you have in a congregational government, people have some sort of say. And the next thing you know, you're going to generate a church split or somebody handles something. That's usually handled if you have a strong authority from the pastor and from the deacon board to oversee that. But it's just better to make sure that before you admit people into membership that they clearly understand the doctrines and the implication of the doctrine of a local congregation. So John clearly makes the point that there is a biblical foundation to exclude people from a local congregation. And they're not only not to receive this kind of person, but they're not even, you know, when the guy leaves, they're not even supposed to say anything like, well, have a nice day, hope everything goes fine for you. You don't, you know, that may be good manners under some sort of secular system, but John says you're not even to say hello to this guy. Whatever you do, somehow it is a participation with him. This is verse verse 11. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. That means just saying hello to the guy for the one who says to him literally, the one who says to him, Koinone shares with his evil deeds. That is a strong statement. That means the idea there for sharing is the verb form of the noun we looked at in first hour in Corinthians. Uh, Here it's koinoneo, uh, not koinonia, which is the noun for partnership, but the verb koinoneo, meaning partnership, sharing, participation in, sharing responsibility in. That means that if you even go so far as to say, have a nice day, then to the degree that this guy is influencing people within your realm, you're going to share in whatever negative consequences result in that. That's part of your responsibility. So that is an extremely strong statement from the Apostle John saying that you don't want to have anything to do with somebody who has false doctrine because you enter into and share in his False doctrine, if you give any hint, the most uh, innocuous hint of approval for this man, including just saying, have a nice day or greeting, just uh, remove him, eject him from the congregation. This is the idea of the doctrine of separation, doctrine of separation. We want to look at this biblically. See, sometimes you have, in some churches, legalistic churches, you'll hear them talk about the doctrinal, uh, the doctrine of separation. And what they mean is if there's some other Christian who has something in their life that's a sin, then you just don't have anything to do with them. You shun them. Some of the more legalistic sects uh, practice shunning. And that, of course, is nothing more than self-righteous legalism. We have to look at what John's talking about here. John is talking about somebody who is teaching, advocating, promoting uh, doctrine with a false doctrinal basis and a false Christology. He's not talking about somebody who comes in who has a problem with the mental attitude, sin of arrogance, or or maybe having an affair with somebody, or is a gossiper. They can cause problems. Of course, if we have any problems like that around here, somebody's causing uh, trouble, then we'll we'll try to handle that so it doesn't create uh, trauma for the flock. But that's not what John is talking about when it comes to separation. It is a clear doctrinal issue, and there must be separation. And notice, this separation is not inconsistent unless you just think John's some sort of idiot, and he's not. It's not Inconsistent with his command to love one another. In fact, it is an application of loving one another. One of the greatest things that leadership can do for a local congregation is to maintain doctrinal purity and accuracy. So doctrine of separation, there are two kinds. Point number one, there are two kinds of separation. Mental separation and physical separation. Two kinds of separation. Mental separation and physical separation. Point number two defines mental separation. Mental separation is a mental attitude where the gr- that the growing believer adopts as he realizes there is a distinction between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. It is coming to a. To a realization in your spiritual growth that you have to erect a wall in your thinking, a wall like an attitude that rejects divine, I mean, rejects human viewpoint thinking. Mental separation allows a believer to put up this wall so that he protects himself from the influence of cosmic thinking. Therefore, point number three, this wall of protection is built through the use of the spiritual skills. Faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation lead to building this foundation of mental separation. Mental separation must come first. You must understand doctrine and you must understand truth, and that must be the basis for making decisions. Point number four, then, physical separation occurs when believers limit contact with others because of false doctrine. This occurs when believers limit contact with others because of false doctrine. It is important to do that because, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 15, we are told that bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I think that's about verse 54. I'm gonna look that up real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's not 54. 1 uh, Corinthians 15, 33. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. So we recognize that at some point you have to distance yourselves uh, corporately from those who come in with false doctrine. But in your personal life, it may become necessary to have physical separation from people you grew up with who were close friends, but you realize after a certain point in time that if your agenda and your goal is to grow to spiritual maturity and theirs is not, then they're just going to drag you down, hold you back, and they're going to be a negative influence, and so you need to physically separate from them. That may apply to family members. Who knows who it may apply to in your life, but there comes a point when we have to realize that some people in our lives are deleterious to our own spiritual advance and growth, and so we need to uh, move forward without them being involved in our life. So physical separation occurs when believers limit contact with others because of false doctrine. Now, point number five, physical separation without prior mental separation, remember that is a doctrinal issue, Physical separation without mental separation, which is making a decision in your thinking to go with divine viewpoint over human viewpoint. Physical separation without mental separation will cause the believer to walk into cosmic thinking through the back door. See, that's what happens with a lot of people. They get involved in some sort of reaction to somebody. And they, and, and next thing they know because it's not based on doctrine, they're not doing it under the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's not part of impersonal love then what happens is they get into arrogance, they get into mental attitude sins, such as reaction, anger, hostility, hatred, uh, vengeance, revenge motivation, bitterness, and next thing they know they're out of fellowship and they're in the cosmic system. So you have to set up mental separation prior to physical separation. Mental separation establishes your spiritual uh, categories and spiritual absolutes. Point number six. Removing someone from church is an act of love. Second John five, six. Just as the... Correct, objective application of capital punishment is an act of love because we always want to focus on the wrong person. Uh, you focus on the victims. You focus on the congregation. One of the greatest things, as I said earlier, that a pastor and that deacons can do is to make sure that doctrinal purity is maintained and to make sure that certain people do not have any level of influence in a congregation, and that is their love toward the congregation. Uh, Point number seven, such an act must avoid any kind of revenge motivation, jealousy, vindictiveness, bitterness, implacability, or any mental attitude sin. Now, John says that the person who welcomes, who even says hello to the person with the false doctrine and the agenda to come in and teach it, the person who even says, hi, how are you doing in a positive sense, uh, is a one who shares or participates in that false teaching point that is verse 11 so john gives a warning from 7 to 11 on the importance of having a correct christology and its application in terms of not even accepting any kind of teacher any person with any voice whatsoever into a local congregation if they do not have a correct understanding of The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 12 through 13, he gives his closing. This is his conclusion. This is his closing for the epistle. He starts in verse 12, saying, Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. Now, this is one of those backward sort of sentences where the main clause is, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, and then you have your uh, subordinate clause uh, following. That's, that's the thought, but he puts the subordinate clause up front because he is emphasizing the fact that he has many other things, that is, many other doctrines to teach them. It begins with a present active participle that does not have the article, therefore it is considered an adverbial participle, and it should be translated as a concessive participle, although I have many things to write to you. And even though a participle doesn't have a person, you pick up the first person from the main verb in order to have it make a little more sense in English. So it should read, although I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. This emphasizes the fact that John is the pastor to this congregation. We know that he pastored in Ephesus, and in the early church, there were not always enough pastors to go around. That was true in various times during church history, during the Middle Ages. As Christianity expanded into Europe and expanded into uh, France and expanded into Germany, expanded later into uh Scandinavian countries the missionaries would go into these countries and there would be many converts but there would be be very few who followed them and who pastored and so they would have itinerant ministries. so they would go from one place to another and teach and then it may be weeks or months before they returned same kind of thing happened in the uh, American frontier you had your your circuit riders who would go from one location to another. And in those early days of, of uh, the American Republic, you would often find the circuit rider who went from one community to another. And one Sunday he would be with one group. Then Wednesday night he would be with another group. And the next Sunday another group. And these early circuit riders, these early preachers in America were well-trained. Because they grew up in a culture that had been so influenced by the importance of the Word of God that almost everyone who went to school learned Latin and Greek, and many learned Hebrew. In fact... Most people were taught to read and most communities were had an emphasis on schooling because they were they understood the importance of reading so that everybody could understand the word of God. So you normally had situations, especially in colonial America in, in uh, under Puritan New England where by the time a young man was 14 years of age and might come to uh, think about his life's goal and the calling of God in his life, he had more Greek and Hebrew under his belt at age 14 than most THMs from Dallas Seminary or Trinity Seminary have today. That's how well trained they were. And then they would go to seminary, and then they would have another, uh, four or five years of study of the original languages and theology. My, how we have fallen. See, we've lost the high standard because we no longer realize that the, per, the ultimate purpose of reading is not so you can get a job and so that you can avoid being shafted in a bad contract or by some scam artist. The reason you learn how to read is so that you can learn what God has to say to you. Everything else is secondary. Once you shift your ultimate goals to monetary goals so that you can make money and get a job, then that, only, that, that doesn't really motivate a lot of people. So you have to have eternal motivations to give people a real sense of their eternal destiny. And so education ultimately isn't education just to live in this life. It's education to be prepared for the next life. So throughout history, you have times when you did not have enough men to pastor the churches that were available. So you had itinerant ministries, you had circuit riders, you had those who like John in this epistle wrote letters and that was the technology that was available to them. So John th- says, although I have many things, although I have many things to write to you, he could write volumes. He says, I do not want to write, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. And here the word that is translated for paper is the Greek word kartu, which is where we get our English word chart. So it has to do with the scroll. And the word for ink is the word black, which was uh, the the black ink that they used. He indicates that there's much doctrine that he needs to communicate to them, but he can't do it with just paper and ink. So he says, but I hope to come to you and speak face face So John recognizes that face-to-face ministry is superior to a non-face-to-face ministry, although he recognizes that because of the circumstances, that many people find themselves in, they may not be able to avail themselves of a face-to-face ministry. Therefore, in his day, they had to rely on written information, whereas today we have all kinds of electronic means. You have television, video, Uh, Internet ministries, audio tapes, all sorts of secondary ways to learn doctrine. But the two points we need to emphasize is John recognizes that face-to-face is superior to -to non-face-to-face. Therefore, if you have the opportunity to get face-to-face teaching, that takes precedent. However, there are many places... In this country, and I know of people who receive tapes from our ministry who live in small towns, not unlike Preston City, uh, but if you get out west and you're in a small town, well, it's even more difficult to get anywhere because the next small town over is 50 miles away. And that small town may not have anybody who's even teaching something that's tolerable. And by tolerable, I mean acceptable. I, um, but it's always the standard in the Word of God to recognize that Christians are to operate within the framework of the body of Christ, and it is the, considered the exception or not the ideal for you to operate on your own just listening to a tape or listening over the Internet. That is If that's the only way you can get any doctrine, well, then that's what we have to do. But that is not the standard. In fact, what I encourage people to do is to get involved with the local church and to find something, if possible, that they can tolerate. You never know. You're not going to church simply because of what you're going to get out of it, but as part of your ministry as a believer priest, in order to have a ministry in that local congregation. Not long ago... It's been maybe uh, two or three years now. There was a young man, military officer, who uh, has been listening to tapes from Preston City Bible Church for some time, and he believes he has a gift of pastor-teacher, and he would email me with a lot of questions, and and we got to know each other through email. And I asked him one, I said, well, how do you know if you have the gift of pastor-teacher, where have you been communicating the word? Well, I haven't. Military career sometimes is difficult to get involved in a local church, and then if you've been on on doctrine or on a tape ministry for some time, and that's been your your main source of spiritual nourishment, then there's very little involvement in a local church. In fact, sometimes we have a tendency to uh, sound rather elitist and don't get involved in a local church because you know there's so many of them that are so screwed up, the doctrine's so messed up, and why get involved? But you have to get involved, and you sometimes you need to be involved in a local church, even though uh, it's not everything you would like it to be, and the doctrine's not everything you would like it to be. It's not necessarily wrong or heretical. I'm not saying compromise on that, but you need to be involved in a local church. And so I suggested to this young man, I said, try to find a church in your area where you can at least put up with what's going on there, And perhaps you can get an opportunity to teach in a Sunday school class or to teach a home Bible study or something like that so that you can find out whether or not you uh, like to teach the word, whether you can teach the word, whether God's going to honor your teaching of the word. And furthermore, even if it's not the greatest situation uh, that you can find, you're going to learn a lot about people and you may even learn. A lot of things about how to run a church from a negative perspective, because if your pastor, and I've seen this happen with people, they've been on tapes for 10 or 15 years, I've got the gift of pastor teacher, they either take correspondence courses or they go to seminary somewhere, and they, they go to pastor a church, and they've never been involved in a local church. They don't know the first thing about it. It's, it's, it's a corporate uh, collection of people, and you have to develop people skills, know how to run it. And when I did my internship at Dallas Seminary, when I was in my third year, I did a year-long internship at a Southern Baptist church. One of the reasons I did that was because every Bible church in Dallas, Texas had probably 12 or 15 uh students from Dallas seminary competing for every position including working in the nursery and so it was very difficult to get involved in a uh, any kind of adult ministry anywhere because there was such a long waiting list so i got involved in a local uh, southern baptist church and the pastor didn't even believe although many people in the church did and he was very uh uh, uh let's say he was he was he was i wouldn't say deceptive but he you had to really dig hard, and very few people realized he didn't even believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. But I got involved with that church and had some great opportunities to teach and some great opportunities to, to uh, challenge people with the importance of the Word. And I learned a lot of things that you shouldn't do in a church and why you shouldn't do them. And sometimes we learn more from the negative than we do from the positive. I mean, you go to some church where everything's running great and everything's perfect. There's nothing there to challenge you. And you really don't learn anything. But you go somewhere where everybody's doing things wrong and there's all kinds of problems and you don't agree with it. You learn a tremendous amount. And so I communicated to this uh, young man, and he eventually found a small, uh, I think it's a Baptist congregation, and, they, and it wasn't long. I mean, it was like a period of about a month before they asked him to teach a Sunday school class. And now they're asking him to teach some other classes. And so he's developing a tremendous opportunity of ministering to that congregation. And so this is true for many others. I've talked to other men who, ah, oh, I can't find anything or everything's um you know these churches are all just a bunch of losers, and you have to think of it in terms of that may be, that that may be very well be true, and I know it's true in some areas, and I know that even in some large metropolitan areas that I'm familiar with, you could drive 150 miles and not find a church that you could tolerate. But remember, the standard in Scripture is local church. We are part of the body of Christ. We are not individuals out there just doing our own individual. Thing. So even though you may be getting the vast majority, if not all, of your spiritual nourishment from uh, tapes or from the Internet, you need to, if at all possible, find some local church to be involved with. So I want to conclude our study of 1 John, our 2 John, with the importance of the local church. Point number one, God created man for community. Remember in genesis one twenty six and twenty seven God creates man in his image and likeness. God, as a triune God, is eternally social by that i don 't mean he 's some sort of social gadfly but there is a society in the trinity there are three persons in the trinity god is a social god he has relationships with other persons and has had eternal relationships with each person in the trinity so god is a has a, there is a community in the trinity there is eternal relationship in the trinity and man is, was created Not to live in isolation. It was not good, God said, for man to be alone. So God created the woman as his assistant. From the very beginning, you have the institution of marriage and family, and this is society at its core. And so there is the importance of a a corporate involvement. People are not to live their lives as in isolation, but there is a corporate relationship and a social dimension. Point number two. Just as God called out a corporate body for himself in the Old Testament and there was to be corporate worship in the Old Testament around the ritual of the tabernacle and the temple, God also called out a corporate body for himself in the New Testament and there is to be corporate worship in a local church. That is part of the function of the priesthood and ambassadorship of each believer. If you isolate the believer from a local church, then you're isolating them from part of their priesthood and their ambassadorship. So point number three, the church then is not simply an organism of individual believers that are united to Christ, but is a corporate unity. We are one in Christ, and we are members of one another, the Scripture says. So it is not just a bunch of individuals that are connected to Christ, like a bunch of individual threads hanging from a common point, but they are united with one another. And God authorized and instituted the local church as the meeting Place of believers. In fact, when you do have in the New Testament situations where local congreg- where, where believers are are edified and taught through epistles, which is most of the New Testament, where they didn't have a local pastor teacher, they're still meeting as corporate bodies. They're not just sitting around in, in Corinth passing Paul's epistles from one individual to the next. They are meeting as a corporate body. They're meeting as a corporate body here in the house of the, uh, 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 in, in uh, whatever small town this is in Asia Minor. They are a group that's meeting together. Same thing in Third John. You have a group that meets together. So God authorized the local church as a place where believers are to meet together and the the framework within which ministry takes place. Fourth point, the purpose of the local church is to equip believers to function in their priesthood and ambassadorship. It is also to teach them how to grow and mature as believers, but part of that is to function in their priesthood, in their ambassadorship, and to utilize their spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are not given for your self-edification, in fact, Paul condemns the Corinthians because that's their idea. Spiritual gifts are given so that you can benefit others in the body of Christ. The purpose of of the local church is to teach doctrine so people can grow to spiritual maturity and to send out missionaries, both foreign and domestic. If you just had a bunch of individuals out there, you would not have an organization for... Supporting missionaries, foreign and domestic, and it's local churches that send them out, and that is part of the function of a client nation. Now, it is not the client nation that sends out the missionaries, it is the local churches in that client nation. Point number five. It is through the believers in a local church, this, I I've kind of skipped into this one already, but point number five, it's the believers in a local church that God, through whom God supplies, The logistical support for missionaries and evangelists. It's through the believers in a local church in a corporate body through whom God, it is through the believers that God supplies the logistical support for missionaries and evangelists. Now, point number six, a problem we have from our own culture is that the United States has produced a lot of can-do individualists, and that's great in a lot of areas. But when it comes to the church, that's not the attitude you see in the New Testament. There's Sure, there's an emphasis on the individual, an individual responsibility, an individual growth, and uh, how a believer lives his life is between him and the Lord. But on the other hand, there's an emphasis on the church, the local body of believers uh, working together, so we have to realize that this idea that I can make it on my own as a believer with just my tape recorder or computer is contrary to the Word of God because it limits and and prevents you from participating in key elements of a local church point number seven let 's look at those. What are those key elements that are missing first of all there 's no opportunity for the lord 's table. The Lord's table is communion, even though it is right and proper to have the Lord's table for shut-ins for individuals. And if, let's say, you're, you're a family living, living somewhere where there's no one else that's even closely like-minded, uh, then I think the father and the family can have the Lord's table for the family. I think that's perfectly legitimate. But that's not considered the normative pattern by the New Testament. It is a, co- a group of believers that meet together. So there should be, uh, the meeting for the Lord's table. Second, there's no opportunity for children's education in a local, uh, local church. It, uh, so local church provides a framework for, uh, prep school and training children in doctrine and training for life. Third, there's no opportunity if you're, if you're not involved in a local church, there is no opportunity for the function of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, by definition, are to function within and for the body of Christ. They're for other believers. Fourth, if you are isolated, then it limits the function of your priesthood and relationship to other believers. And then fifth, if you're isolated, it limits the application of all those one-another passages in Scripture where we're to pray for one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, teach one another, which indicate this mutual uh, function of the priesthood in relationship to other believers. And by being in isolation, you shortchange yourself, and you shortchange your own opportunities to fulfill divine mandates in relationship to the body of Christ. Point number eight, while a believer can get the information necessary to grow spiritually through non-face-to-face teaching, this is not viewed as the best or the normative situation in the New Testament. John says, I would love to tell you many things. I have many things to write to you, but I want to come and tell you face-to-face. It's a superior way of communication. Point number nine, in the early church, they did not always have trained pastors and so training occurred through the non-face-to-face teaching. But we have to always watch out for, that we don't fall into the trap of thinking we can just go it alone. Okay, Paul says, I hope to come to you and speak face-to-face that our joy may be brought to completion. In other words, uh, joy being brought to completion, joy is, the, is uh, sharing the happiness of, of God, that is the a highest level in the spiritual advance. Remember you you never have a goal of being happy in life. People have a goal of being happy in life are miserable. Your goal is to do many other things and a byproduct of that is happy. That's why sharing the happiness of Christ is the top line. When you are doing all have all of the other spiritual skills in place and you're applying them, then the result is that you will have that happiness, stability, and tranquility that Christ promised. So that John says, I hope to come to you and speak face-to-face, that is, communicate all these other doctrines, that our joy may be brought to completion, that is, that we may uh, grow to spiritual maturity. And then he closes in verse 13 by saying, The children of your elect sister, that would be the home church in uh, Ephesus. Remember, ecclesia is a feminine noun in the Greek, and so a church would be referred to from as a feminine the children of your elect sister that is the chosen church uh that is the church in Ephesus the children of your elect sister greet you so he just closes out with simple greetings this concludes our study of second john and next sunday we will start with third john actually third john has 14 verses second john had 13 but Third John is shorter in the Greek so we will study the shortest start studying the shortest epistle our postcard we might say in Third John next Sunday with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today to be challenged with the fact that we are to grow and mature as believers and this comes through the teaching of your word as we learn uh, everything you have for us in your word jesus prayed sanctify them in truth thy word is truth Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make this sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for you. He paid your penalty. He bore your sins on the cross so that all you have to do is to accept that payment on your behalf, to put your faith alone in Christ alone, that you are trusting nothing else, that Jesus... Christ's death on the cross is sufficient, it is complete, it is total. Nothing can be added to it. And on the basis of his work, you believe you have entry into heaven. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.